Hi, everyone. Dan here. And before we start the show, I've got some huge news to share. As of a week or two ago, I was entrusted with the title of Editor-in-Chief of Comics XF. It's a great honor. We've got a great team, and I'm excited for where we're going. Anyway, as part of that, the first big move we're making is moving the Comics XF Patreon. If you want to support the site and our amazing writers, editors, and podcasters, I encourage you to do so at the new Comics XF Patreon, which is formerly the WMQ&A Patreon. The old Comics XF Patreon is going back to being the Battle of the Atom Patreon to let Zach and Adam do their thing, and the WMQ&A Patreon is becoming the Comics XF Patreon. Got all that? <laughs> now what does it mean? It means we've got a whole bunch of new tiers and new goodies heading your way. For a dollar a month, you get our deepest thanks and a shout-out at the end of every episode of WMQ&A, the Comics XF interview podcast. For $2 a month, you get early access to WMQ&A and a shout-out at the end of every episode. For $3 a month, you get one of our stickers. We've got Comics XF stickers, we've got Battle of the Atom stickers, we've got Pete Wisdom Hot Claw stickers, don't forget about those. And you still get the early access to WMQ&A, and again, a shout-out at the end of every episode. Sticker is one time. For $5 a month, you get access to our Patreon bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a monthly deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. The sticker, the early access, and a shout-out at the end of every episode. For $25 a month, you get to request a primer, our uh, custom reading guide to Comics XF for a series, character, or creator, plus the bonus podcast, the sticker, the early access, and the weekly shout-outs. You may request a new primer once every six months. And for $50 a month, you get to advertise on WMQ&A, the Comics XF interview podcast, subject to host approval and no other rewards with this tier. Our crew is working on some other new projects, so new backer benefits are always a possibility. And if you have suggestions for what you'd like to see, share them with us at contact at comicsxf.com. We hope you'll consider supporting us, and we thank you for listening and sticking with us as we move into the future. Enjoy the show. WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the Comics XF podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazowitz. And this week's guest is the cartoonist behind the new graphic novel, The He-Man Effect, How American Toy Makers Sold You Your Childhood, Brian Box-Brown. Welcome, Brian. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, guys. So how was your Barbenheimer weekend? Um, <laughs> uh, I haven't, I didn't see any of the movies, but um, I think it was good timing for Barbie to come out around the time of my book coming out. So I don't, I think that might've helped a little. It's, it, it got the He-Man effect bump. I, I think we can all uh, agree on that from the uh, <laughs> weekend's box office. Yeah, yeah, they definitely did. <laughs> uh, best weekend since before COVID. You did it. <laughs> I would like to get out and see one of those movies. I'd see either one of them. So I wanted to start off by relating a personal story that I feel like is germane to the conversation that we're about to have. It's early August, 1984. I'm, mm-hmm. four years, I'm four years old. My baby sister has just come home from the hospital, but uh-huh. along with her comes something else. Castle Grayskull. <laughs> my, my parents, in a bid to make sure that I still felt loved slash, you know, to buy my continued good behavior, had bought me what was arguably probably one of the hottest toys, play sets at least, of the day. 
Yeah. Uh, for the record, I was a shit older brother until like 2002. Yeah. <laughs> but the important thing is, A, they tried, and B, it's it's one of my earliest core memories, and C, a pretty good test case for the He-Man effect in action. Yeah, you know, I have, I have to say my uh, my uh, August or December 1984 was very similar. Uh, you know, um, I think we're probably around the same age. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, for for our generation, uh, it was crazy, He-Man. But not just He-Man, because there were so many other products, too, especially like girls weren't super into He-Man. They had their own, a whole bunch of other products being marketed to, to girls, you know. Um, you know, that was me. That was, uh, that was me, you know. Um, I had Castle Grayskull and all those toys and, you know, I, I still, I wish I still had all of them. I mean, like, that's one of those things where you're like, man, I would just love to like open it, open up that thing and smell it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, that's the kind of like what the book's about though, is like that feeling Mm. of, like wanting to like get your childhood back. Absolutely. And I know, you know, every, every last one of those He-Man figures, Transformers and Joes all disappeared in a yard sale sometime in the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. Not very long. They didn't make it very long at all. I mean, like, I I don't even, I don't know, but I remember like by the time I was like 10, there was no He-Man like around my house like at all mm-hmm. zero human around <laughs> so like those were con by then D- Dolph Lundgren went a long way to killing him. <laughs> yeah yeah mm-hmm. that was like the first movie and maybe and like one of the only movies I ever walked out of was the was the He-Man movie and um, in, in 1987 you walked out on it yeah no I think like my some <laughs> like somebody spilled a soda on my cousin or something Oh, okay <laughs> and um and uh and uh they were like oh we gotta go and i didn't put up a fight i was like all right that's cool i don't care what happened at the end of this movie i remember being like extremely disappointed in the he-man movie genius like um it, you know i i rewatched it not that long ago and it's it the opening like the beginning is kind of like very he-man-ish like it starts off like an eternia or whatever and then uh, it just becomes like He Man's in America in 1987. It was so like goofy and corny and was like, I think the big thing, the main issue though, they could have done the same movie and if they didn't replace a bunch of the recognizable characters with unrecognizable new characters, and even the characters that were the same from the cartoon had like to- looked totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think they like lost so much doing it that way. I mean, it's an urban legend, but it you can absolutely see why people think that it was a repurposed New Gods script. I can because, see that. Yeah, because you, I mean, the the cosmic key in the mother box, and yeah, also like Skeletor's costume at the end kind of looks like New Gods almost. He has like this crazy headdress thing on. Okay, here's a weird one. There is a guy who runs a karaoke event here in the Philly area. Oh yeah, I know this guy. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Skeletor karaoke. Skeletor karaoke. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he did his like, I can't remember. It was tenth or fifteenth anniversary show a few months ago, and a buddy mm-hmm. of mine was in a band with him many years ago. So I went with him and my partner, and you know, we we went, we watched, it. and he came out in that costume for the anniversary oh, wow. show. It wow. was <laughs> something else. Went all the way. Oh yeah, <laughs> the full Angela. <laughs> Mm-hmm. so like that's like an example that's a great example actually of uh how like you know because that guy's been doing that for 15 years like but you know that only stretches back to like what 2010 or something like like late 2000s so like it was still already like so many years after he-man was gone but like that that, that skeletor karaoke is like the biggest most popular karaoke in the city of philadelphia like by by a mile, you know, and that's because you know people still have that, I you know, Skeletor is like a character in their, you know, inside of their, uh, it's it, it, part of like their identity. There's actually there's a podcast that I think Matt and I both listen to. It's called Garden Plots with Skeletor, where a guy playing Skeletor uh, gives gardening advice or attempts to give gardening advice from week to week. And is just constantly interrupted by uh, <laughs> his, his henchman on Eternia. And then eventually it extrapolates out to like, there's Cobra commander ca- cameos and Megatron. And like, <laughs> I think Dr. Claw from inspector gadget showed up once. And, oh, nice. Yeah. All, all the, all the uh, bad guys. Mumra. Mumra has been in there. Mumra. Too. Gargamel. Yes. <laughs> some of the some of the, so uh Mumra was a little bit even was even like a little bit scary when I was a kid. Like it like the visuals and stuff were like, you know, it was like pretty gnarly looking. But also he had a dog. <laughs> like Mumra was like this scary mummy that would like bloodthirsty, like trying to take over the planet. But he had like a pet dog that kind of like looked like him a little bit. Bulldoggy kind of thing. I remember. Yeah, it looked like yeah. a bulldog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I always thought that was funny when all the, the bad guys would be like so evil, but also have like a pet. Like Doctor Claw had like that pet cat. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Gargamel had a pet cat named Azrael. Azrael, yeah, yeah. I yeah, yeah no, they like have pets. I wonder if Memora had to have a dog because his enemies were cats. Cats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Oh, that was a uh, Thundercats was a really cool show. Uh, like I remember seeing that as a kid and being like, "Yeah!" Like I was like, "I'm in!" From the first episode, like then I remember them being like, "There's a new show going to be on like on Monday called Thundercats," and I was like, "Oh, like I'm watching that!" And then like episode one, uh, then one of the characters is naked. They're all like naked in it. <laughs> Like episode one, like they show the the female character naked, but like she doesn't have nipples. But it was like this weird erotic thing for a little kid to see, and uh, I was hooked after that. But that was like a cool show and weird. Like, uh, so like they all go in. So it starts off. They're like crash land and they're planet. It's like a Superman type situation where they're planet. They have to escape their home planet, right? And uh, they're in the spaceship, and they, like, are in the spaceship so long, and they're in, like, hyperspace that, like, 
a bunch of years pass, like 10 years. They age like 10 years somehow in it. But like nobody else aged at all. And also there was kids, other kids that didn't age somehow. Yet Lionel, the main dude, ages. So he's like in his 20s, but he's really only has the brain of like a 12-year-old. Like that was like the whole concept of the show. So some Billy Bats in there. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird, like because yeah, so that's the whole thing. It's like he's the leader of the Thundercats because he's got the magic sword, but he's also like a twelve year old in a twenty two year old body. And he's the leader. <laughs> it's a very weird yeah. concept, but um the show is awesome. It had cool characters. Um I felt like the toys kind of sucked though. Like they were weirdly shaped and like had these weird gimmicks that you like you shove something in their back and their eyes light up. Like it had this like thing. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 That That was cool. Um and I remember they had a cool castle and like cars and things. So at doing this research I was like figuring out that like pretty much the whole point is to get the kids to buy the play sets and the vehicles mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. the figures are like cheap like gi joe you know gi joe figures were like not very expensive but like the vehicles and the accessories were like where the money was at like mm-hmm. some of those huge ones were like really expensive and uh so like the the, the figures were almost like a like the gateway drug for the for the people selling the stuff you know to make um, you know, to get kids to buy like Castle Grayskull with like mm-hmm. the bigger price tag. Uh, and now GI Joe had had this place that that was like a battleship that was like the size of a coffin, like it was like a coffee table. Like, it was so huge. <laughs> I don't know any kid. No, no kid I knew had it. It was like this like insane, insanely huge thing that very few kids had it. Do you remember the, the the Cobra base? It was basically just like a big metal-looking donut. I forget what the hell mm-hmm. it was called. It was like the, the Terradrome. Terradrome, the, that's it. That's what it yeah, was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that uh, was cool, too. It was, like it was a oh, dome thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. rad as shit. I, I did get it for Christmas one year, but the problem is it came missing pieces. So my dad actually had to send it back to uh, ha- Hasbro? Yeah, it was Hasbro. Hasbro yeah. yeah. And they never sent him a replacement. What? And, oh my and god! Like, worst Christmas ever. I, you know, I remember being oddly fine with it. I'm like, all right, well, that was shoddy craftsmanship. So yeah, they probably all send us the real one. That's funny, man. That's, they probably had a bunch of them lying around too, unsold because there were so many. Like that was such a big gambit to have that enormous thing. I also like one some of the reasons they had those huge ones, like the really huge. Um, stuff that like almost nobody bought, like the giant, the giant battleship and stuff like that, um, was kind of as advertising on the shelf for GI Joe in general. Mm-hmm. So it would take like take up a lot of room on the toy shelf and say GI Joe across all of it. So it was like GI Joe was having this giant toy space and taking up so much space. And kids would come in and just see all G.I. Joe. It was like this visual, you know? So it was weird. So it wasn't, it was like a lost leader or something. Like, 
Hmm. No one really was buying it, but it was like they just wanted it there. So like there's a, I have this documentary about um, craft beer uh, called Beer Wars. And they okay. talk about Budweiser. Budweiser does the same thing. Like um, they like stock places up with like way more beer than they actually sell. And, um, you know, uh, fill up the shelf space that's like at eye level with like the Budweiser logo simply to like take space away from their competitors. Um, so it's like this weird psychology involved in making those giant bases, like because it was like really all about uh, like a, a show of dominance by, by C.I. Joe and Transformers and He-Man. Because, like, you couldn't, you know, if you were, like, a smaller time, the smaller time, like, the property, like, the less stuff they would make, you know, mm-hmm. or could make, you know. Um, although they all made bases. That was, like, a, I have, like, this old um, Sears catalog from 1986. Oh, is that one of the I Wish love. books? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. shit. It was, like, 40 bucks on eBay. It was not cheap. <laughs> but it's funny because, like, they printed a billion of them and every it was like the phone book like every family had one and but they're still mm-hmm. hard to come by um because they got thrown out in january yeah i mean it was trash i mean <laughs> a newspaper it'd be like saving tv guides or something but uh you know it was awesome looking through that and um you know all those all those there was tons of like uh like properties i didn't even really remember and they had they had a base they had like a face to go with all their guys and everything. Um, that is a cool catalog to have around now because it. The weirdest thing about it is that it still functions as a functional functioning catalog because you can keep you can actually just buy anything in it really on eBay. Like it, the catalogs from '86 and the prices are all off. <laughs> but you know, you if you search hard enough, you can find pretty much anything in there. What do you want for Christmas this year? I want Inhumanoids from 35 years yeah. ago. Visionaries. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Visionaries is another cool one. Human- Inhumanoids is my favorite because I was like scared. Of- I was afraid of it. Um, the cartoon was straight up scary. Like it was uh, like some of the visuals were like really like inappropriate for <laughs> however old I was <laughs> to be watching it. And it like scared the shit out of me. But also, I was like, I want to see that show that scared me so much again, you know. Um, and that show actually did have cool toys, too. I remember having a few of those figures. But that was a situation where the bad guys themselves were like the vehicles and play sets. Because the bad guys would be like these enormous monsters. <laughs> um, so I didn't have any of those. I mean, I would see them. Nobody I knew had them. I like see them now at like toy shows and stuff. I'm like, oh man, there's that thing. It's huge. It, it's, I, I do feel like, you know, even in that era, children's animation wasn't afraid to scare kids. You know, I mean, think about Transformers where they're just throwing dead Decepticons out of the 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 ship in the movie or even like, oh, like yeah, in the, the fucking secret yeah, of yeah. him. Hmm. You go yeah. back. Oh yeah. Real Ghostbusters used some legitimate horror in that cartoon. Yeah. 
Oh, for real. I mean, it was different. It was different shit back then, man. It was, I mean, really, also, they made figures out of R-rated movies. Like, there was Aliens figures. That's an R-rated movie. Ter- you know, Terminator, Robocop. Made a Robocop cartoon. Mm-hmm. Predator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rambo. Thing. There was a fucking yeah. Rambo cartoon. There was a Rambo cartoon. It's like the most violent freaking thing. Um, yeah, I mean, like, they, you know, Robocop, like, honestly, like, I that was one of my favorite movies when I was a little kid. Like, we had it on VHS and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, it does make sense. And it, all my friends also liked it, but it was very inappropriate for, for us. It was, like, all about... <laughs> You know, drug smuggling and so much swearing. There's like prostitution in it and like just people getting shot to death constantly. It's like so violent. And melted. Um, yeah. yeah, the dude <laughs> the dude's like toxic waste covered in toxic waste, his face is melting off. I mean, like I you know, that's the stuff you liked, I guess. But the kids kids are the people that like that stuff, really. Mm-hmm. Although and Robocop that- I, it, 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 you know, it has a lot of different levels that it's working on. Absolutely, I think Robo- RoboCop was my first R-rated movie, if I remember correctly. Really? Yeah, yeah, makes, yeah I could see that. That I mean, like, yeah, but that stuff was like, it was they, they don't make stuff like that anymore, like at all. Where it was like, this is an R-rated film for adults, but we know that kids like like it like rambo yeah like all of that stuff um yeah i mean they just won't do that. i mean um the transformers movie was rated pg and had like swears in it mm-hmm. like they were i think they did that um because to get the parents to take the kids where they were like oh you know it's not even it's not a g-rated movie like it's you know uh, a real movie. It's PG. It's like a dude swears twice in there or something just to get that PG rating. Yep. Mom, because you love just this movie. Robots. <laughs> yeah, love this movie. There's a robot. He sounds like the guy from Unsolved Mysteries. He says a swear. <laughs> <laughs> my dad. I still remember my dad taking us. I must have been like five or six years old, and he was like, "I can't believe I'm sitting through a two-hour commercial." And I was like, I just remember being like, what are you talking about? Like, this is not a commercial. This is the show. But that's the thing that, um, you know, when I was doing research for the book, you find out, like, children, and they knew this from studies, that (laughs) children could not and can't still really tell the difference between the show and the act. Like, they can't tell what's content and what's advertising. And they don't really have understanding of like what advertisers are trying even to do or anything like that. And so like, but they knew all about that stuff before they deregulated. They would just decided that they didn't care. Um, and that's a crazy thing because like, it's all so nostalgia, right? Is this like, you know, human emotion. It's very strong and kind of like not, really a bad thing although it does kind of feel like both like happy and sad at the same time Mm -hmm. um you know what i'm saying it's like very powerful but but also it's also it's it's you know uh heartwarming but also a little sad um 
but it's really powerful. And um, I think they inadvertently with the deregulation in the eighties created like a generation who has nostalgia for all of these. Like, I don't know if they, they knew, I can't say that they knew for a fact. I mean, the cynical side of me wants to say that, yes, they of course knew and this was their plan from all along, but I don't know if that's, but they bombarded kids so much with this 24 hours a day advertising that later on it paid dividend it's paying dividends because uh you know we were advertised to so heavily at such an impressionable age that all this stuff all the stuff from that era has tons so much potential for rebooting because people see it as like part of their identity um and that's when you start seeing stuff like the crazy reactions to star wars news and things like that where people just like go nuts um i think it's it has a lot to do with people you know when you're building up the identity of like who you are as a child mm-hmm. part of that a big part of that is the way you interact with your peers and stuff in interpersonal uh imaginative play um, and that's like how you like become kind of like the building blocks of who you are, like what your personality is. You know, who you're not just a blank slate anymore. You're like becoming something, and your and your personality and like your identity builds on these memories over the years, and uh, you know, eventually you become like a well-rounded person, right? Um, but all of those building blocks that were part of making you who you are um you know they hold a really powerful weight on you um so when stuff happens to them like you know um them casting uh you know you're racist and they're casting somebody that you're a race that you don't like um you're gonna flip out i mean and that's also because if you're it's so much a part of your identity people's identities that if if you are a racist person then you see star wars as a racist thing as something that like is part of what made you you um you know and that's why i mean it's that it comes out you know the craziness comes out because it's like that star wars thing is like the linchpin (laughs) that's holding up all of the rest of the person's personality. And if something, if you pull something out right at the bottom there, stuff starts crumbling down. It's like the person's world gets turned upside down. Who am I? These existential crises happen. Um, And that's, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know. uh, This is all like a subconscious level because it just comes out as like, Oh, fuck you. Let's rewrite Star Wars. Like, you know, (laughs) you're reading, there was like, you know, a group of fans that were like putting together like a petition that was like signed by, you know, hundred, you know, tens of thousands of fans, and it was like we're forcing you to rewrite the Last Jedi and put it out the way it was supposed to be, how they intended, or whatever. Before you went woke, you know, all of these things. Um, 
it, I don't think it's just because everybody's kind of like insane on social media now. Um, or maybe it's all part of the, you know, that's how we got to the point where we're this insane because these brands, Mattel, Hasbro, Disney, you know, Star Wars, these, these things like live inside of our like soul in a way. Um, you know, our, our, our most precious memories have, you know, Mattel stamped on them. I, I, w- I was thinking about that because, you know, I was thinking about the, the, the scope of, of your book and, you know, we start not at the dawn of man, but, you know, damn well near it with Julius Caesar <laughs> sure. and, and it ends with that letter to Kathleen Kennedy. And I'm like, what a point to end on. But it drives home the the point, the way that, you know, these companies now have us cradle to grave. And, and it's the poison pill hiding in that nostalgia because it's not just, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm 33 now. I got a little bit of spare change on me. I'm going to buy back some of my old action figures. So, you know, Duke can stand on my shelf and wave at me while I'm doing my accounting job or, or whatever it is I do. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's now you you think that you have the power to tell a company, uh, I'm sorry, but I don't think this this lovely young Asian actress should be a linchpin of the current Star Wars universe or or, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also, you know, um, like we all are like collectors, like we're all, we all want to get that thing. I had an interview uh, not long ago where a guy compared it to uh, like pharaohs uh, putting all their like worldly possessions in their tombs with them, and like we're kind of buying our, our, our memories back and like putting them in our special case so it can like be near us in our tombs. You know what I'm saying? If you think about the generations before us, I think there's still nostalgia, like, but it's not nearly as intense for this type of stuff. Like, um. You know, my dad's generation, he definitely has nostalgia for, like, old cowboy movies and things like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, the big time. But, like, his house isn't filled with, like, eight trillion cowboy action figures that he had when he was a little kid or, like, Mm -hmm. you know, a bunch of different properties. And they didn't, like, you know, when, when they rebooted, like, The Lone Ranger, you know, no one in that generation, like, lost their shit because it wasn't just like the TV show. Like, they just barely went to go see the movie itself. Um, and, and that's because, like, that that intense level of advertising hadn't, hadn't come into play yet. Started in the early 80s. Like, in, when Reagan came to power, in, the early, in 82 was, like, the beginning of it. Um, they deregulated the media, the television completely, basically. Um, uh, they decided that the television was to be regulated the same way the toaster is regulated, which is basically uh, as long as it doesn't electrocute the user or like burn the house down, it's fine. But like toaster, you're just getting, you're putting in bread and getting out toast. Like the television, obviously is a medium for like infinity ideas and ways to manipulate the public over and over again. Um, And so they, you know, they deregulated children's media and they had there. There was a boom, an action figure boom, but there was also a bust. I mean, like, 
And then, uh, but uh, uh, among the other things that they, they were on like a deregulation spree, among the other things in media that they deregulated was they got rid of the fairness doctrine, which was, um, uh, you know, in all of media, if they were, you're talking about politics, you had to show both sides of an issue. So uh, all television kind of looked like um, all political television kind of looked like meet uh, like uh, like meet the press, I guess, on Sunday, like the Sunday morning shows mm-hmm. where, you know, they'll, they'll bring up an issue and they'll be like, here's the Democrat so and so to talk about it. And then as soon as they finish, they say, all right, here's the Republican to talk about, like, the other side of the issue. You know, that's the fairness doctrine. You hear a little bit of both sides getting rid of that. Um, the first person really to take advantage of it was Rush Limbaugh, um, you know, because they could now do political radio or, or television or whatever that was completely one-sided. They didn't have to show both sides of an issue when talking about politics. So that it, it paved the way for right-wing radio, mm-hmm. um, which was, you know, the first step in like creating Fox News and, you know, MSNBC and CNN and and really um, putting us in 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 our on our teams, I guess mm-hmm. you know, um, in a way that wasn't really the same like that before. Um, it, you know, it, obviously there was like division amongst people, but you know, there it wasn't being whipped into a frenzy on a regular basis. And that was due to the regulations. <laughs> like the only reason it wasn't was because of the regulations. And when they got rid of it, you know, kind of all hell broke loose, and they never uh, fixed it. And it's you know, the genie's out of the bottle now. There's nothing really that can really ha- be done. Um, yeah, the, the toy thing is kind of similar. Like they made kind of like minor efforts to change things. Um, George H. W. Bush was going to make changes and got kind of close. And then the argument was made, you know, if all kids shows are really just advertising, then you're saying that Sesame street is just advertising. And, uh, you know, the, the legislators all were like, no, uh, that was like a really powerful argument for them. They're like, no, that's, you know, Sesame street is not advertising. So this is, they didn't make any change. (laughs) Now, Sesame Street is a great show for preschoolers, but it is 100% advertising. It has been since its inception. Um, because in the 70s, when no television shows could sell products based on their characters, Sesame Street was allowed to. Um, I think because of the uh, nature of it being public television. Mm-hmm. Um, or it was just not seen as advertising because it was public TV or whatever it is. Um but they always had dolls, Sesame Street dolls. Tickle Me Elmo was like the biggest kid's uh, toy one year, you know. So Sesame Street is 100% just as guilty as all these other parties in terms of using advertising to children to sell products. Um, just classier about years. it. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're just a little bit classier. Like we use the money to expand sesame street to places where they can't get it and it's like yeah well you're also just expanding your market for these toys and shit to places new places all the time and it's a non-profit but like 
they're making tons of money. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, my kids love Sesame Street, but like, let's let's not call it. Say it's not. You know, let's not say it's something it's not. It is selling stuff to children. And especially um, now that it's on Max, uh, you know, some yeah. of that argument goes away too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, it it is you know it has, has some content for kids. Anyway, so that's what later on, basically, when the Clintons finally did make a change in '96, they didn't change so much the practice of selling products based on television shows and toys. I mean, uh, cartoons. They just kind of changed the content of what children's cartoons could be. And it had to be like educational. But you could still sell. I mean, like they still sold the product, even if it was educational. So like it didn't really change much. It was too little too late kind of as well, because at that point, you know, there were so many other things diversifying the children's market like Nintendo, not the mm-hmm. least of which is like video games and stuff like that and just the advent of cable television, now we're talking about whole, you know, Cartoon Network and like Disney Ch- Disney Channel where it was like full 24 hours a day cable shows of cartoons and they needed so much uh, content that like people weren't jumping straight into like make an advertising show to sell more toys that these cable channels needed content to fill fill television so like it became it reversed kind of back to a normal thing where you're trying to make a television show if it gets popular then you make merch for it um but you know as things go now things get more and more efficient and yeah, as soon as they see any data of a show being popular, you know, the, the products come pretty quickly. Um, and it's just like a matter of course thing. Like, we don't even bat an eye at it. You know, um, my, my one son loves this television show called Bluey, um, which is an awesome show, actually. My daughter <laughs> loves the Bluey. <laughs> it's great. My nieces. I, honestly, yeah, as an adult that has to watch the show constantly, I like don't mind watching it at all. And like new episodes came on Disney Plus this week, and I was like, "Hell yeah!" <laughs> I was like so pumped for them. But they have toys for this Blue is the Lee. least like worst they... option. Let's go! <laughs> yeah, for real. I mean, <laughs> but they have Bluey toys like everywhere. You know, I mean, there's no no um, shortage of Bluey products and things like that. Um, I, I, I'm always like thinking, I'm like, oh man, is, what is the thing that in, in 25 years, my son's going to be like, oh, I'm going to have to buy this bluey toy, you know? <laughs> um, but it's funny because like, you can't, you can't like decide what you're going to feel nostalgic about. And sometimes you feel nostalgic about stuff that like is not good at all. Like, like intellectually, you're like, this is really bad. Like, this is a really bad, unentertaining, stupid thing. But for some reason, I watched at a certain point in my life that now I want to watch, you know, Back to the Beach 1986 movie. Like, whatever. It's so dumb, but, like, I love it because I have nostalgia for it. And, like, clouds your vision, right? Um, 
So that's why you have people like in pro wrestling, there's always arguments about who's the best pro wrestler or whatever. And it's almost always the person like the person who's making the argument's favorite wrestler when they were 12 is they'll make a, a, an intellectual argument for why they are literally the best of all time. But really, they're not really at the best of all time. It's just you like them a lot. And and uh, and it happens in other sports, too. I was talking to somebody about it, and they're like, oh, it happens in baseball all the time, where people are like, oh, yeah, this guy was the best pitcher ever. And like, no, he's not. You like them, <laughs> you know. Um, but that's like a, a big problem with nostalgia, too, is that um, it, it can be used nefariously um, to get people to uh, it'll have people thinking that something that was really shitty was great um, like when people talk about uh, how things should go back to the way it was in the 80s or whatever the 50s they'll be like oh it should go back that way and you know that might have been great for you know a white guy that has like a totally regular uh, middle of the road type of existence but clearly bad for almost everyone else so like factually you can look back and be like no that was not better but in people's minds it, it can be used as a, as a powerful argument by saying that we can go back to the way things used to be that were so great make America great again um right there i mean that's all all based on nostalgia so it's really like this double-edged sword yeah i think it's our generation has a more material nostalgia well if you look at boomers it feels more societal more Mm. you know i remember when i could you know when when i was a kid i could go out and we never locked our doors and i could Mm -hmm. play out in the middle of the street and you know there were no, no no problems and nobody's talking about you know lynchings or yeah yeah there was the, tons, all every problem was sundown going, laws yeah. yeah right yeah the <laughs> fact that if you were gay you could be arrested for being gay yeah yes exactly because there's so many there's so many material things you could point to and they're like no that was not better but it's it's there's people that will never they they are staunchly believing and, and this is due to to nostalgia where it's really really that's how powerful it is and so uh these these companies really you know hit a home run trying to when they when they infiltrated our our brains as developing children and they they got us for life you know, um, all these properties at any time they mention, I'm going to take a look at it. It's like a, a guaranteed bunch of people are going to go see something or do something or buy something. Um, now, I mean, as, as uh, our ge- generation gets older and, uh, you know, some people have more buying power, I get ads for stuff like really expensive sunglasses that like have Darth Vader on them, kind of. Or like they kind of look like a stormtrooper. Um, I was getting at you know there's Barbie uh, branded like purses and things like that that like you know these are like 
you know, sooner or later, we probably ha- already have seen this, but sooner or later, you know, we're going to see stuff like He-Man branded cars. I mean, there's definitely been Star Wars cars for sure. Um, but, you know, that, that's how, you know, it can be used to sell, you know, big shit. Like, to move, like, for real, real products and things like that. There is a guy, I can't remember where I, I read about him, but I'm 99% sure I remember. There is a guy who makes Batmobiles for people. He custom right. mods cars into Batmobiles. Like the the uh, the West, the Adam West version. Right. But right, right. Least, only, the, only that one? Just the 66 with the red as trim? As far as I remember, uh, this is one of these things where I'm now like saying it, it's like, I know I remember this from somewhere, but I might be Mandela affecting it. Yeah. It, it sounds He'd make more money if he made IndyCar into the Batmobile somehow. Mm. Like if you just go in and be like, mod this, make it look like Batmobile somehow. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I also saw the other day that uh, the Batmobile was used as some other, in some other movie before Batman came out. It was just like this cool looking car. That they then turned into the Batmobile. Um, also, uh, uh, Jerry the King Lawler has a Batmobile, like really? the Adam West Bat- Batmobile. That's amazing. So let's 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 wind the clock back uh, a little bit here. Uh, how did you how did you come to to dive into all this in the first place? You know, when you were wrapping up uh, Cannabis, your last book. You know, what what made you decide this is the topic that you wanted to tackle? So often I find out that um, uh, I've been researching a book for like 10, 15 years without really knowing that I've been doing that. Um, and that was kind of what was going on, I think, with the, the He-Man book. It was, um, you know, I, I at some point in, into my early adulthood, I started, you know, going back and buying all the stuff. Like I said, this year's Wish book, I was buying a lot of Battle Beasts. And, and things like that. And uh, I went to a toy show and it was absolutely just like packed with people, like mobs, people buying and selling old toys. And I'm looking around and I'm like, damn, you know, like this is really just the advertising from the 80s, like still paying dividends. Like all these people make their living based on, you know, the advertising done in 1983. Um, and so I think that was kind of the impetus because like, I really had wanted to write about the toy thing, but couldn't. I was like, "What's the story that you? I will like team in. Like, what the? That's not a story, you know. Like, <laughs> um, and it was like a long time of just like you know thinking about all this stuff and buying stuff and you know, um, st- but it was like that feeling of nostalgia, that initial feeling of nostalgia that that was so powerful that was like. I could like almost feel it like in my face, like where I was like, I want to go back. Like I, I can almost like taste the feeling of being in like 1983 or something like that. And it's, it was such a powerful feel. It's so powerful. It's like uh, uh, the other day I was talking about this and it's like the, the uncle from Napoleon dynamite. He, um, he's like, so, you know, he wants to go back in time so badly. He buys like a a time machine from eBay and he's like trying to go back. 
that's like the thing. It's like you want to go. You want that time machine. You wish you, you, you'd give anything to like go back and do it. But at the same time, like I often am like, oh, I wish I could just like go back and it's like 1988 and I'm like, you know, eating snacks and like watching ESPN wrestling, you know, uh, in the TV room upstairs. But like, if I really think about those moments when I was doing that, I wasn't like in ecstasy. I was like mostly bored and like happy that I had like a TV show to watch. Like, it wasn't like the most amazing thing in the world that I want to go back to. It was like totally mundane. Um, it's just that like the things start to like illuminate over time and, and get brighter in your memory. You know, Matt, I, I don't think we got uh, what, what what was your what was your toy line back then? What was little Matt playing with? Well. Oh boy. Um the, the there's a handful of them and the funny thing is you can name like three or four and there's still like 50 that you're not this isn't like you know Oh yeah. one and so like when I, when I think about that it's I know superpowers which informs mm-hmm. me to this day. Uh real ghostbusters big big fan. That was another that was mm-hmm. one of those movies that yeah, I did not get all the stuff that was going on in that movie until much later, but I remember digging it oh, yeah. when I was a kid. Right. And you're you're kind of two of your absolute staples, your He-Man and your Star Wars. The Ghostbusters thing was huge though. That was the biggest toy in 1987 or whatever it was. And that's one I remember that under the Christmas tree were the four Ghostbusters and the Ecto-1 together. I remember that nice. was one of the ones that I have a very firm recollection of getting that at one time on Christmas and being like, or no, because my dad loved the man to death, but he has a sense of humor. He put three of the Ghostbusters and the car together. And the fourth one was like hidden somewhere in the room. <laughs> like Venkman wasn't with the rest of them. And I eventually like stumbled across it because... <laughs> My dad is that kind of guy. <laughs> love you, Dad. <laughs> I love that he hid the Bill Murray one. That's that's fantastic. Now that's that, that, that's the funny thing. So I didn't realize that the, the the Ghostbusters toy line had come out so far after the movie. Like the movie was eighty. The first movie was eighty four. Toy lines eighty seven. The funny thing is, the next year Ghostbusters two comes out in eighty eight, and there's that whole scene where oh, I want to say it's Aykroyd and Ernie Hudson go to a kid's birthday party and the kids uh-huh. are pissed that they're not He-Man, which by yeah, that yeah. point had outlived its useful life. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Um, that's true. I, I think, I don't think they would have made the second movie though, if the cartoon wasn't so popular, like they had to capitalize on it. And the, the second one is a little bit more, you know, toned down in terms of like, dark humor and stuff like that no one's getting and, a ghost blowjob in the second one. yeah yeah <laughs> and they're all not smoking like chimneys all that, that oh, yeah, first yeah. one you never you barely ever see Ackroyd without a cigarette it's crazy how people used to smoke so much in movies i was watching some some movie not long ago from the 80s and i was like damn everybody is smoking non-stop like they don't do that really anymore 
even like the early seasons of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, they were smoking like chimneys. It is crazy. It, we have really changed a lot as a society in terms of what's going on with cigarettes. <laughs> that, was, that was a huge turning point. Yeah, no, definitely. It's funny, when you look at the ratings or the before a movie trailer and it says what it's rated this and that for, it, it cigarettes now absolutely make it into that. Because I, oh. I go to the movies a lot, and I after a while you kind of can figure out what trailer it's going to be based on that. And I remember, think you know, action, violence, and smoking. I'm like, look at the, oh, it's got to be Indiana Jones. It's a period piece. And I was like, yep, those <laughs> are smoking, right? Yeah. So in in doing all this research and kind of learning about the you know history of the way you know and the way that marketing has had an effect on on us do you feel like that recontextualized or or changed at all like how you let your kids you know consume media or get attracted to brands or anything like that yeah definitely um you know like listen as a parent in uh, the 21st century like it's extremely difficult to like avoid um this type of stuff like my son's t- about to be two years old he knows how to like completely manipulate fucking youtube and youtube kids to like all this put on all, he knows all these shows that he likes and everything all that stuff um you know I, I do see stuff on youtube sometimes where i'm like you know this commercial is actually pretending to be a show and really it's just a commercial for this thing and it'll be like a six minute long commercial if you don't hit skip and I'm like this is the thing but also like yeah I mean like I well you know like I don't indulge my kids like crazy into Disney Um, we also don't really let our kids wear too many graphic t-shirts and things like that um so they're not like a walking advertisement to other kids very often. Um, But, you know, I mean, like, I think it's, it's being aware of what's going on. It's so when I was a, when I was a kid, there was this documentary for kids um, called buy me that. And it was about, um, it explained how advertising worked. And it was like, you know, it showed you how they, filmed a cheeseburger for TV to make it like look better than it really is. Or the French fries and their cereal and all these things. And I think like just knowing that stuff was like helpful to have like some media like literacy that even as a kid, you know that like you're, you know, this is the best. They're not looking out for your best interest. You know, um, it's important to cut to regularly recognize that yourself and maybe tell the kids like, because it's like, I know a lot of people that like take their kids to Disney all the time and, and it, you know, God, I bless them for being able to afford it. But like, um, you know, the idea that you're just giving this brand like a, a pass for every single one of its products is you're endorsing it. Um, you know, you kind of have to think about yourself that way. You don't want to be a, you're already a victim. You don't have to also be a perpetrator. You know what I'm saying? My, 
my my house is already far too gone down the mouse hole. There's there's oh, no yeah. hope for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have tons of stuff. All, I mean, you know, and I watch Star Wars. Like, what am I going to not? You know, the idea of not of trying to pretend that you're not feeling nostalgia or like hiding it or something mm-hmm. is would be like stupid. It'd be a, a fool's errand. It'd be like tr- deciding you're not going to laugh anymore. Um, you know, uh, because, so, you know, uh, sometimes people laugh at other people, so you should never laugh. No, you have to laugh. It's like a human, it's part of being uh, alive. And like, uh, nostalgia is like also part of being alive. It's part of how you, you know, remember who you are and why you're here on earth. And, you know, it, it helps you remember all of your, you know, most precious memories. Um, and it's, it's important, but it's like, you also, you know, if you're being manipulated, it's good to, to know that there are manipulators out there that, you know, aren't necessarily just making this, trying to make the best movie possible for the kid. Maybe they have an ulterior motive to try to get as much money as possible out of this person, this kid, not just right now, but for the rest of their lives. And this is like part of it. Um, you know, I think it's important to remember how deep it goes. What what what's something in in the time you spent researching for this book that you didn't know beforehand that surprised you? Oh, there's a, there was actually like a ton of stuff. I thought I knew it all, and I was like, wow. So like, um, I didn't understand really that the um the deregulation thing was not just like Reagan and, and, you know, George Bush, like acting unilaterally to be like, this is going to be how it's going to be done. It was like the entire industry had already lobbied for this to happen for many years before it happened. So like when they were pitching He-Man and stuff, like they knew this was coming down the pike. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a happy accident where they were like, oh, you know, we just happen to be pitching this right as we're allowed to do a cartoon, you know, based on the stuff. Like, um, also the um, <laughs> the little things at the end of G.I. Joe where they tell you knowing is half the battle. Um, and it says, like, it's like the U.S. so-and-so council. Um, that was kind of there just to placate parents, like on a it, because it was such like a violent show, really. It was like constantly guns and shooting all the time. And so they threw that thing at the end to be like, oh, there's educational content as well. Um, so to, to preemptively, in case anyone said anything, you know, He-Man did that too and Transformers. Um, and those are quite, quite funny. And a lot of the times the lessons are not even great lessons <laughs> at all. Um some of them are really like one of them, at least one of them is like, don't touch a live wire, which was like very, very funny. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, so like there's all those things too. And there's tons of stuff that like, you know, I hadn't thought about at all. Oh, oh also like um, Transformers and G.I. Joe ha- have a shared origin point. In the fact that, um, so like, 
at one point in Japan, they made a cyborg toy based on the mold for the body of the original G.I. Joe. Then the cyborg toy became like another cyborg toy that was like a miniature side. It was like a miniature guy. And then that became, um, uh, what was the thing before Transformers that was like in the late Micronauts, right? Became Micronauts. And later that eventually became Transformers, but it was like, the goes all the way back to that GI Joe mold. And then they became, and they had like that shared thing. That was pretty cool. That was funny. And all the Japanese stuff is interesting. Like, the idea that like Transformers was like a Japanese toy that the U.S. came and scooped it up and licensed it, rewrote the entire mythos behind it. Then Japan was like, all right, we'll just use your thing. And so now Japan's using the American stories in their cartoons to sell the same toys. And then it goes it, they stop selling them in America and keep selling them in Japan. So now like the cartoon, which was created uh, based on a toy created in Japan, the cartoon was made by Americans. And now here's the Japanese making their own cartoons based on the American toy, based on the Japanese toy. It's like all these layers of things. They were all in a movie with Kevin Bacon. Yeah. <laughs> But so, Japan had its own Kevin Bacon. <laughs> so uh, one of your earlier books was a biography of Andre the Giant. And, and picturing Andre, it got me thinking, and having just written this book, I'm curious if you have a thought. If Andre had been in a more faithful and better live-action He-Man movie, which master of the universe would you have wanted Andre to play? Oh, uh, let me think. He would have been a great voice of uh, the dragon guy who was, uh, there was like a, a, a dragon that hoarded treasure and stuff named Grandemir in He-Man. Um, Andre would have been a great voice of that guy. Um, he would have been, he would have been a great voice of a lot of different guys. Beast man. I think he would have been good as, mm. um, uh, you know, I don't know if they had a giant character on, on He-Man. I can't remember, but he would have been a great voice for, for some of the villains. So uh, our, our grand Twitter inquisitor, Asimov Fangirl, uh, wrote in to share uh, a couple of her, her uh, little experiences with the content of this book. And she mentions that because she's from Mexico uh, and a native Spanish speaker, it took her until her late 20s to realize that He-Man basically just meant man-man. <laughs> right. And uh, she, she also said that as a, a child, she really liked Transformers, but because of the the you know, toy stores were limited in her area. And, and also, you know, the fact that she was a girl, she never got one. Well, in 2020, right. As places were starting to shut down for COVID, she went to the mall and finally bought herself an Optimus Prime because she figured, you know, nice. if the worst happened, she would have finally, you know, been able to scratch that off the list. <laughs> um, I, whenever I see um, tractor trailers without the back on it, I'm always like, that's, <laughs> Optimus Prime, like that's how big Optimus Prime would be. Like it'd be him standing on that. And I always feel like it's there actually wouldn't be as big as they appear in the cartoons. Like 
they're huge in the cartoons and like the dudes are like these tiny little things but if you could picture that just like a car kind of reformed and standing up mm-hmm. not that huge not like bigger than your house so they could step on your house or something like that now, now I, I haven't seen I've only seen the first of the Michael Bay Transformers movies but now I'm wondering how much he was no, concerned yeah. with scale <laughs> um so um, one of the movies I saw recently that like reminded me of all this like 80s stuff was uh, the Dungeons and Dragons uh, movie. That's like it's called like Honor Among Thieves, which was actually mm-hmm. really good. Um, but there's a scene in that where they're like in kind of like a um, it's kind of like a gladiator style like arena where they have to fight, and they look over and there's like another group of uh, like thieves and stuff like Dungeons and Dragons dudes that are also in the same predicament and they're all the characters from the 80s Dungeons and Dragons cartoon um, which was a great cartoon and they had Dungeons and Dragons toys also but like none of the characters from the cartoon had toys it was a weird tie in we mentioned before your last book was was about uh, you know cannabis and, and you know obviously that's an industry that you're still keep keeping tabs on and cartooning about. You also live across the river from New Jersey where we live, which is a year into its legal cannabis market. I, uh-huh. I, I was kind of curious, you know, what, what is our state doing right? And what are we doing wrong so far? Oh, um, <laughs> I could go on and on. Um, <laughs> well, one thing that, that New Jersey really needs to change like immediately is you should be allowed to grow like it's the only state really in the country where they have legal adult use cannabis and then but no option if you want to grow your own like there's not even a medical option of any kind um that's i think just like so greedy and like just ridiculous um the other thing is that and, and this is not just limited to jersey this is like super common like across the country is that they over so they give the local townships too much control over things and what happens is most of the townships opt out so then you you're down to like 30% of your state that actually allows cannabis businesses and then of them they the townships get to like rewrite write their own laws and stuff on top of the state laws so it keeps a lot of people out of the business, like the, the level of, um, and I think it's kind of unnecessary um, compliance stuff that like is not really necessary in terms of like how to run a safe cannabis business. Like it's just like over above and beyond and, and, and um, it's really like harming the business. Like it's harming the, the, system and end the business like if your goal is to end the traditional slash like illicit black market you have to like let those people get legal not like keep them illegal and only this these other people allow uh, allowed to sell so i think what you know jersey like just everybody else um has this problem where like they want to legalize cannabis but they still don't like cannabis users and they don't want to smell cannabis or like see it um 
but they won't legalize without also creating a legal market. It's just really, I, I think we could be, we could take a lot of um, what Vermont did was really good where they legalized cannabis, stopped arresting, arresting people, legalized grow. And then they spent the next four five years developing a sales um, system that will work for them. And what happened is in those five years, everyone got used to the fact that cannabis was legal and you saw less opting out and a lot more acceptance of cannabis businesses because it was already legal, you know, and, and it, it, it's when you legalize and create the market at the same time, you're putting a gun to the head of the arrest people that are going to be arrested. So PAs arrest 12,000 plus people per year. And so when we're figuring out what kind of legalization system we're going to have, that, that 12,000 arrests per year is like a gun to your head saying, take whatever, because we have to stop, get these people to stop, stop arresting. But then you accept a system that's horrible and it's very difficult to change once it's already in there. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, it's just going to be another bunch of years where this experiment will roll on. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I live near Atlantic City and, and the mayor there has been very gung ho for like weed as a as a tourism draw. And there uh -huh. have been a lot of of applications for for licenses for, for cannabis businesses. And, and, and a few have, uh, have opened up, uh, you know, not just medical, but recreational. Uh, but recently, the the people who kind of handle planning and zoning in the city are like, are, are, are we approving too many of these? Maybe we should uh, take a break. Uh, you know, so now we're, we're, we're like the, 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 the foot's kind of kind of coming off the uh the accelerator there a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, I, my, in, in all other things besides you know, outside of cannabis, you know, all of these same people are all about letting the free market decide on stuff. You mm -hmm. know, if you license 8 billion cannabis stores, you know, most of them are going to go out of business just because there's not enough people to buy that much weed. Like, you know, they'll compete themselves out, you know, it'll figure a way out to where there's enough stores to make sure everybody's getting what they want and whatever, what they need. Um, when you try to be like, you know, we're only allowing three stores and they're going to be in this spot, like by the airport and like, you know, um, you know, you're taking away the whole concept of a free market, which you preach about constantly. You know, it's, it's it, in every, in all other ways, the free market's great, but except here, I mean, I think, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have regulations. Like, I don't. There's people that say stuff like that. I think it's kind of stupid. Like, obviously, we want we don't want moldy weed. Like, we have to have some sort of you know safety regulations here. But like, I think there's there's a a ton of stuff that could get cut out that would make keep everyone just as safe as they are now and allow access to the market for more people well as we're as we're winding down here uh any any signings or convention appearances that that uh you have coming up in the near future that you want to plug two events at the end of august in uh portland oregon uh, one is the permanent damage festival 
um, which is uh, going to be amazing. Um, and then I'm also doing a talk and signing at Powell's Books. Um, and that is um, the last weekend in August. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, penultimate question. What are you reading right now? So I just got uh, two books that uh, I started reading a little bit. Um, uh, Sammy Harkham's um, Blood of the Virgin. I just got that. I actually had bought it like a month ago, but it took me a, that long to go to the store and pick it up. Um, and then also I got this book called Bicycle Day, which is a comic about um, the guy who invented LSD. Brian Blomerth is the uh, artist. He's really cool. Really good artist. Brian, this has been a fantastic time. Uh, final question as we release you back into the world and out of your car. Uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with uh, the He-Man effect and everything that you got going on? So I guess right now, I I mean, you can still follow me on Twitter slash X. I, I don't know what's going on with Twitter, but who does? I'm still there for now for the, for the time being. <laughs> Um, I'm also uh, Fox Brown on Instagram, um, where I post my weekly strip, um, Legalization Nation, which, is, like you said, is about cannabis legalization. And um, you know, you can you can get He Man Effect out now in stores everywhere. Right on, well, Brian. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Mick. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash ComicsXF, where a dollar donation gets you a shout-out at the end of every episode, a $2 donation gets you early access to WMQ&A and a shout-out. A $3 donation gets you a sticker, early access, and a shout-out. A $5 donation gets you access to our monthly bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $25 donation lets you request a primer, one of our custom reading guides for a series, character, or creator. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Tobias Carroll, Natalie Jordan, Mike Sagawa, Will Nevin, Liz Large, Asimov Fangirl, Carla Pacheco, and Robert Secundus. You're all special, and we love you. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. You can also follow ComicsXF on Facebook. And until next week, remember, we didn't actually see Pete Wisdom go through the London Gate during the Hellfire Gala Massacre. He could be okay. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.